0: Good morning, welcome. Uh, I'm going to pray before we get started because I need it. So please bow your heads with me. Father, you are so good uh, to use us. But God, I have nothing to offer. Lord, I just pray that you will help me to uh, work through this text effectively, Lord, in a way that glorifies you. If you left me up on my own... I would have nothing good for anyone. Lord, I pray that you will help me to, uh, to uh, preach the things that you've put on my heart, the convictions you've given me as I've studied. I pray that you will honor the time I've studied. Lord, that this will not be a waste of anyone's time, because we know you say that everything in your word is profitable for us. And we pray that we'll see the fruit of that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, today, as... Uh, uh, Ryan said, "We're going to be Psalm chapter 11, which we just sang Uh, the last time I preached a psalm. I'm not a huge fan of preaching psalms; Uh, it stresses me out. I'm a narrative guy. I like preaching through stories. Uh, I'm just—I'm a storyteller. I'm very long-winded as a human." Uh, so, I appreciate uh, walking through scripture and, and, and uh, painting the the stage, but the last time I preached a psalm was uh, it was a kind of a last minute thing. Uh, Brent had to step out, and uh, nobody else was available. This was two years ago uh, on valentine 's day, and the, the elders had already selected Psalm chapter five, which is a psalm all about god 's hate, uh, which was perfect for valentine 's day and I was like Oh, Lord, that was very difficult. Uh, and I'm thankful I never have to do that again. So as I was... Uh, but, I, I, you know, I was struggling to pick a psalm. And when I was talking to Ryan, he's like, you know, we're singing Psalm 11. I'm like, oh, that would be so cool uh, for us to... Uh, you know what? I'm just going to pick that without even reading it. Because I I, I would love for us to, to work through again uh, just the psalm that we're singing. And uh, it is the, the second psalm that mentions God's hate. Uh, so... Hopefully I do a better job this time. Oof. Now, uh, in Ryan's video, uh, he talked about how uh, most scholars uh, attribute this psalm to a time in David's life where he was with Saul. There's no way to conclusively say that it was definitely written during any specific time in David's life. But I am with Ryan in believing uh, that it best fits in the midst of his tragic relationship with King Saul, uh, who was the first king of Israel and his predecessor. Uh, Now, in case any of you are not familiar with the story of David... Uh, I think it's worth sharing since my psalm only has seven verses. And like I already said, I'm long-winded. So I thought, let's do a little little time in 1 Samuel this morning. Now, uh, you don't have to open there in your Bibles because I'm just going to summarize. I think everyone here is pretty familiar with the story of David and Goliath. But uh, not as familiar are most people with the rest of David and Saul's relationship. So I thought I'd talk about it. Uh, Because as we read this psalm and open and and talk about David's thoughts on fleeing, it's important to know that his relationship with his father-in-law Uh, was marked by 14 different attempts by Saul to murder David. Um, And I thought I'd take you guys through all 14 this morning if you guys are down. Y'all ready for that? All right. I made a slide last night uh, at midnight because uh, I should have called Ray. As you can see, my graphic skills are not Ray's graphic skills. But uh, I felt bad about it, so I just thought, you know what, this will help kind of keep us all on track, keep me from drifting and preaching all the way through the book of 1 Samuel today. So uh, after David killed Goliath, um, he became best friends with King Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, And Saul was a big fan of David's at first. Uh, Saul made David a general in his army, and David was absolutely killing it. Uh, He was winning many battles, and he was becoming famous all throughout Israel. As a matter of fact, the people of Israel uh, began singing his praises. A song about him became famous. We see it multiple times throughout Scripture that it even became famous amongst the Philistines. A song that said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Uh, now, I don't know about you guys, if you've ever trained anybody up or had any kind of apprentice, uh, but it's a beautiful and humbling experience when they surpass you, but then when everyone around you starts to notice and sing praises of them, if, if someone wrote a song about you that if Scotty has, you know, uh, preached his thousands, but whoever else is 10 times better than him in pretty much every way, I'm... Not perfect. I might get jealous. And Saul got jealous. And unfortunately, in Saul's jealousy, I'm going to walk you through 14 red flags about Saul that he began to exhibit in his behavior. Number one, uh, David was employed by Saul to play the harp because uh, scripture tells us that uh, when David played, it calmed Saul down. Uh, so one day, while David was playing a gentle, lovely harp melody, Saul was just looking at him and not feeling it. And he picks up a spear and chucks it at David. Fortunately, David is spry, and he ducks, and the spear misses him. And he's like, wow, Saul, what an incredible coincidence that I happen to be sitting here <laughs> while you threw a spear at the wall, right? And David went back to playing. And then, attempt number two, Saul tries again. He tries to spear him a second time. And this time, David's like, Saul, I'm starting to think maybe this isn't just a coincidence, man. Uh, I'm starting to feel like you're angry at me for some reason. Uh, and Saul, twice in one moment attempts to murder David, but then he realized maybe something a little more subtle would work. So his third attempt, he offers his daughter Merab to David in marriage. If David could simply win against the Philistines for God's glory, uh, hoping that he would die in combat. Well, David goes to war uh, and again, as he is marked by, he is an incredible military success and he comes back with more glory than ever, but Saul uh, drops his promise to David and gives his daughter to another man. But amongst that, another one of Saul's daughters, Michal, uh, fell in love with David and Saul saw an opportunity there. So, uh, look, David was a poor guy. He was just some lowly shepherd from Bethlehem. His father, Jesse, wasn't uh, wealthy in any way. So David comes to Saul uh, once he realizes that his daughter is in love with him. And he's like, Saul, look, I would love to marry your daughter, but I have nothing to pay. There's no bride price that I can afford. Because at this time, you would come with an offering to the father of the bride if you were a young man asking for a hand in marriage. And Saul says, David, it is no big deal. I've got a special bride price just for you. Just bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins, right? So that's what Saul commands David. Uh, so attempt number four, he tells David, I want you to go and slay a hundred Philistines. Take the, It's in the Bible. Take their foreskins and bring them back to me. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. <laughs> so naturally, right, romantic and overachiever that David is, he goes, Mikhail is not a 100 foreskin gal, right? He kills 200 Philistines and he, uh, he, he, receives his prizes from them, puts them in a bag and brings them back to King Saul to spoil his girl. And King Saul, believe it or not, he had no interest in that bag. He wanted David to die. He thought maybe this would encourage the Philistines to fight a little bit harder to avoid this fate. But no, still David is victorious. So Saul's plan didn't work out, which takes us to number five. Saul commands his son, Jonathan, David's best friend to kill him, as well as his servants. But instead of murdering him, Jonathan warns David. He says, David, you got to get out of here, man. Uh, And and Saul realizes, my son's not going to kill David. Instead, I think he warned him. So like any unhappy father-in-law would, Saul takes a third attempt, number six, at spearing David while he was playing the harp. Uh, So again, David is playing, which you'd think David would have found another job by now. But no. Saul throws another spear at him. uh, And this time, David's like, I'm starting to think this isn't an accident. And he flees to his home. Attempt number seven, uh, in pursuit of David, Saul sends assassins to David's house to kill him, but David hopped out the window, and I kid you not, you guys see Ferris Bueller, right? His wife takes an idol, a mannequin, a, a wooden carved image, and lays it in the bed and makes a wig out of goat hair and puts it on him and covers him up and tucks him in gently, and then when the men show up to kill David, she goes, oh, sorry, you coming to kill David, huh? He's sick actually look at take a peek in the room and they see the idol on its side with goat hair and they're like oh David's just sleeping so they go back to Saul They're like David he's got a cold man we didn't think it was the right time to murder him uh and Saul's like are you kidding me go get him out of the bed and bring him back to me and I'll kill him Well, when they go to retrieve him of course they realize it's a mannequin not David and uh, they've been bamboozled so uh that doesn't work so David retreats into the wilderness uh, and spends some time with Samuel, the prophet, who the books of First and Second Samuel are named after. And David is hanging out with these prophets. This is fascinating. I didn't know this story before I uh, started studying this. He begins hanging out with these prophets. Is anyone familiar with this next part? I never learned this in Sunday school. He's hanging out with all these prophets, and Saul sends number eight assassins uh, to kill him while he's with Samuel. Uh, and as these assassins move in, they're creeping up on David amongst these prophets and the Holy Spirit enters into the assassins and they begin joining the prophets and singing praise to God and prophesying. And a lot of commentators think that these prophets were really musicians and basically they're walking in on like a drum circle. So these guys come in uh, to this uh, uh, and they just start jamming and singing God's praise. So Saul gets word of this and he's like, oh, my messengers are prophets now. Let's try this again. So number nine, he sends another group of assassins. And they start prophesying after the Holy Spirit enters them. So they're just growing. The prophet numbers are growing and growing. So a third time, Saul's like, I got to change it up again. This time, I'm going to send a group of assassins. Uh, So he gets, again, another group of assassins, and he sends them. And a third time, you're never going to guess what they do. They begin prophesying in the name of God. So Saul, attempt 11, goes, I... It's not like God's trying to stop me here. He's like, what a crazy coincidence that I just can't murder this kid. And he goes, I'm gonna go this time. So attempt 11, Saul goes on his own. Well, the Holy Spirit enters into Saul, makes him strip completely naked. And for a full day and night, Saul writhes on the ground in this drum circle, singing praises and prophesying for God. Saul himself, and I kid you not, This occurrence became so iconic in ancient Israel that this actually became a figure of speech in Israel for when you find a weird person somewhere you don't expect to find them. They used to say, Is Saul also among the prophets? We even see that figure of speech used in scripture, right? It's anytime. And we can bring that back, right? That's like if you go to a yoga studio and I'm in there stretching, you'd be like, Is Saul in here too? What are you doing here, man? And that's the ancient Jesus. So Saul now double humiliated. Everyone knows this story. And everyone is now speaking and using his name to make fun of him. So Saul then returns home again. And Jonathan tells David, you have got to get out of here. So David flees to the priestly city of Nob. uh, Where he, he lies to the priest there to get some of the holy bread so that he may eat. And he asks if they have any weapons. The priest says, we have no spears but... We have a relic. We have the sword of Goliath here, which was a large sword. Scripture says it weighed about 15 pounds when the average sword weighed about four pounds in this time. And it was a one-handed sword because he had a shield as well. So David goes, you know what? Haven't held that thing in a while. Let's do it. So David takes the sword of Goliath and retreats. But as he's retreating, one of Saul's uh, chief shepherds happens to be there because of a religious vow he took in the priestly city. And he sees David fleeing into the wilderness. So David ends up in a cave in the wilderness where his brothers and his families find out and and their families find out that he's there. So they go and join him. And then basically anybody in Jerusalem that's like in debt or depressed is like, hey, I hear we can get a new start out there with David. Let's go. So 400 men end up going out uh, and joining David in this cave. And he ends up with this ragtag bunch of misfits who aren't soldiers uh, who join him in the cave uh, in, in exile, right? That's like, look around this room. This is, there's more people than are in this room are following David around in caves in Israel. Well, scene change back to Saul. Uh, he's in a field and he's tearing into all of his advisors. He's, he's challenging their masculinity. He's like, what are you guys doing? How did none of you tell me that my own son, uh, Jonathan, was conspiring against me to save David, and as he's challenging them, his chief shepherd stands up and confesses. He says, I saw David and I saw him leaving uh, Nob with the sword of Goliath. Saul is furious, so he goes to the city of Nob and he commands his armies to kill all of God's priests for conspiring with David. And his men go, No, we are not killing God's priests. They defy the king of Israel because what judgment is there from a king? When when you have a holy God to answer to. So he goes to the chief shepherd that saw him there and says, you lead the charge. So he does and he goes in and he kills 85 priests and all the men, the women, and the children in the city of Nob. We see the kind of bloodlust that Saul had for David. And one person escaped, the son of the priest that gave David the sword. And he had heard that David was in the cave so he happens to find his way there. Uh, where he uh, joins up with David. And back and forth and back and forth in the wilderness, there's uh, a few chapters of just stories and adventures of David. When finally, uh, attempt number 12, one day is Saul is, uh, has David cornered as he's chasing him in the wilderness on a mountain range. David's whole army is on one side. Saul's the whole army of Israel is on the other side of one mountain. And at that uh, decisive moment, Word comes to Saul that the Philistines are invading the country, and he must take his armies back or he may lose Jerusalem. So Saul has to stop in his fight and leave David on the other side of the mountain and return back to Israel. After defeating the Philistines, attempt 13, Saul takes 3,000 soldiers back on the hunt. And as he's out there in the wilderness, they didn't have quick trips in ancient Israel, and Saul needed to relieve himself uh, so Saul, not to relieve himself in front of his men, finds a cave nearby some some sheep uh, fields. And he goes into this cave, and almost like we serve a sovereign God, it just happens to be the cave that David and his 400, well, now 600 men, because more have joined him, are hiding. And as Saul goes and uh, begins to relieve himself, David creeps up on him with his knife, planning to kill him. And as he approached Saul, he was convicted, and he thought... God appointed this man, who am I, to kill him? So instead of killing him, he cuts a piece of Saul's robe away. Saul has no idea what's going on. So when Saul's finished, he walks out of the cave and David follows behind him and yells out, Saul, here I am. Why are you trying to kill me? Why do you pursue me? A dead dog like me, a flea, he calls himself. He says, look, I cut off a piece of your robe. I had the chance to kill you. Why are you after me? And Saul's devastated. He calls him his son and he says, I'm so sorry, clearly you are the one that God means to to bring in after me. He says, please, David, when you become king, promise not to kill my family. And David agrees to the promise. Well, David goes on some other adventures with his army when finally, the 14th attempt, Saul comes after him again. This time, David sneaks into Saul's encampment at night and falls Saul asleep in the center of his encampment with all of his army around him. And sitting right next to the head of Saul is his spear stuck in the ground and his water canteen. So David takes Saul's spear and he takes his water jug and he retreats up to a field opposing the Israel army, sleeping. And he yells out, waking them all up and says, Saul, saw him here again. Look, I had another chance to kill you while your general slept, but I didn't. I gave you mercy, and Saul comes out again, and he apologizes again, and they go their separate ways. And surely Saul would have changed his mind again, if not for a defeat at the hands of the Philistines, where Saul committed suicide after uh, being defeated with his sons. So those are the 14 attempts on Saul's life, on David's life by King Saul. Uh, why do I share these with you? So that we can understand that we can pretty much not relate to David in any way. Okay? If you can, please come down to the stage after for some prayer. We'll introduce you to Jeremy Brandon. You need counseling. And uh, we would love to help you because, wow, right? This, he's a giant slayer, a musician, a shepherd, a masterful warrior. And soon a king. David was an amazing man. And we struggle to relate to his experience, but we can relate to his relationship with God. And as we go into the text, I'm going to pray one more time because you can't pray too much before we begin in verse 1. Father, help me to move through this text. or May you inspire us. May you convict us. May it hurt in the beautiful way that only you can hurt us to draw us in and hone our edge. Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Verse one, and the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Now, fleeing isn't something that we're super familiar with in Cobb County in the 21st century. Right? Not many of us have ever fled anything, but David was no stranger to fleeing. And after t- hearing this tiny snippet of his life, can you blame him? Right? Fleeing is one of those words that I think, at least me personally, it just doesn't speak to my heart. Because I, don't, I can't relate. We see it in Scripture multiple times where people flee in sin with David, Saul. Uh, we see it with Adam and Eve, uh, with uh, Jonah. We see it with Peter even. What David's laying out here is there's two options, take refuge in God or flee, or basically take refuge in God or find refuge in literally anything else. And we say, "Eh, flee, I don't know, but who here can claim that they find refuge in nothing but God? All of us, whether we feel it or not, are accustomed to fleeing in our own lives. Because the truth is, if we aren't taking refuge in the Lord, we're taking refuge in a safe space that's not Him. And it can look noble to do it. It can look harmless to do it. And it's everywhere. Because it doesn't try to be a refuge like God. It tries to be a refuge to replace God. It's not the same kind of refuge that we're seeking, which is why it's so easy to put them into separate categories. And to say, well, no, 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 these things are me just zoning out. These things are me finding refuge in God. They're not necessarily at odds with each other, but they are. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? It isn't God who gave David this bad advice. It's his friends. It's the world. And the same advice is the subtle mark of our world today. People want to find some way to lose themselves. As the great poet Marshall Mathers said, you better lose yourself in the music the moment you want it. You better never let it go. Right? In all seriousness, though, Eminem's right. We are a society of getting lost in things. But we're not trying, I'm not trying to escape my father-in-law, so what are we trying to escape? Reality. Reality. We are opposed to it in the world today m and music, but think about the places that we flee to. Where do we get lost? Where do we find refuge? Right? There's easy answers. Right? Where do we put our hope to carry in or to carry on? You know, there's alcohol and tobacco, there's uh, uh, TV, right? video games, vacation, Instagram reels, things that seem so harmless in our lives, but we get lost in them. And we love to get lost in things. We think of idolatry as something that happens in front of little carved statues. But the truth is, we devote way more of our attention to turning our brain off than any pagan in a mud hut ever devoted to a tiny carved image. Is it noble just because we're more self-aware that it's a waste of time? Just so you can say, I know it's a waste of time. (laughs) I spent four hours on Instagram reels last night. (laughs) Ha ha! It shouldn't be funny. You say, oh, come on, Scotty, that's a big sweeping statement. Yes, it is. That doesn't make it not true. How do I know? Because we don't live with the same sense of urgency that David did to take refuge in God. Because the truth is, we are dealing with far more in our lives than a Saul. We're in a spiritual war, and our enemy, Satan, works in distrust. He always has, and this is what I think distrust is so sneaky about these days. We say, I'm tired. And honestly, I'm just going to find more rest in Netflix than God right now. Opening my Bible is just going to put me to sleep. I'm not trying to go to sleep. I'm trying to unwind. It's sneaky. Yeah, of course it is. How easy to justify getting a break. You're, oh, I'm just getting a break from this sinful world. It wears on me. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to spend my time here. It's not all my time. It's just every moment from when I get home from work to when I go to bed like, ah, it's, it's, I feel like Satan works way more in the open, which we see in the next verse. Look, verse 2 says, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the broad daylight with a sign that says smile, I'm here to kill the good guys. No. So they fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright of heart. And the advice to flee is bad, but the circumstances leading to that advice are real for David. For us, And we read this, we're like, when's the last time somebody pointed a bow at your heart? It'd be terrifying. I've always thought it'd be way scarier to walk into a house and have somebody point a bow than a gun, because there's just this uh, implication of experience there, right? Uh, A lot of commentators talk about this is like the equivalent of somebody pointing a a gun at you today, but it's really not, because anybody can pick up a gun and use it, right? But uh, uh, ancient bows... We're wielded by trained warriors. A kid couldn't pick up a bow and accidentally draw back the hundred pounds of knock strength, right? And knock an arrow and hold it steady at your chest. No, this is a daunting adversary that David describes. But let's be tangible here because most of us don't know this feeling. Why is that? Who's holding a weapon to our heart? Here on the staff, we have uh, a few staff values that we go over every single staff meeting, every week, uh, before we begin. And we give a little commentary on them. And one of them is that this is spiritual. And we have these because th- this protects us from mission drift and from getting lost and getting discouraged. Because the truth is, we are in a spiritual war. But we don't like to think about that because It's weird. Right, Spiritual stuff gives us the heebie-jeebies. It makes us feel a little uncomfortable because people get weird about this stuff. But I think we forget about it in our comfort today. Ephesians 6.12 says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Your boss is not your enemy. He is not a cosmic power over this present darkness. He may be difficult, but the Bible calls us to love difficult people. Your in-laws are not your enemies, even if they throw spears at your head. God calls us to love them, right? Our enemy is Satan, and he is formidable. And if you feel, if anyone in here hears that name and there's no sense of familiarity with it, the Bible says we walked with him and step by step until we were saved by the power of the gospel. Satan is real. We don't talk about him enough. Part of it is because, bless their hearts, some people make a joke out of Satan, right? They don't mean to, but they believe that demons manifest themselves in physical ways. But Satan's not in your check engine light. He's not concerned with the physical, right? He's a prowling lion, the Bible tells us. His realm isn't physical, but it's, he, he works in the realm of deception. It's subtle. Satan works to defame the name of Christ, and he takes great care in it. That's why there's no Muslim or Hindu or uh, 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 Buddhist faith healers. Satan doesn't need to defame Allah He's only after defaming one name, Jesus. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise when his servants do too. He despises truth, and he will keep us from the truth at all costs. And this truth is our foundation. This truth is Scripture. It is the foundations that David talks about, the things that his society was built on, right? God's law. Satan has been trying to undermine the word of God since Genesis chapter 3. He's never changed his method. It's literally the oldest trick in the book. Always he's trying to cause us to doubt God's intentions, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his plan, and to doubt ultimately what he says to us. She takes us to verse 3 If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We are hopeless without the word on which our hope is revealed. And you know what? Diving into scripture won't scratch the itch that your favorite TV show does after a long day of work. It's not supposed to. That's the fake danger of our age that we want God to be our escape from reality. And we say, God, I love you, but other ways are easier to escape from reality. And God says, yeah, I I show you reality. I'm not an escape from reality. I'm everything but it's the subtlety of Satan's lies that he convinces us we're in danger of not having an escape. That's, that's how soft we are today. Satan, David's in danger of fleeing the, the powers that be to murder him. And we're, we're terrified of losing our escapes. When the truth is we don't need one. Praise God for vacations, but we don't have to have them. And you will be fine without them. And you don't deserve it. So stop saying, I deserve a vacation. You don't. We should find our rest in the Lord. He brings comfort different than our escapes do. It brings true comfort, not safe, mindless, numbing distraction. Like Brent said last week, the will of God is never the safest place to be. The will of God is not comfy, but it's good. It's the best place for us. Anybody ever had a bird flying in their house? Or on your screen and porch? You ever try to catch it? They just won't learn. You can sit there with a cardinal for an hour, right? And you're like, look, I haven't killed you yet. Just let me get close to you. And the moment you get close, they will, they will kill themselves fleeing you, right? When they get tired, they will over and over bust their head into the wall. And this is what David is talking about. This is what it means to flee like a bird. We train ourselves to be little birds that flee trouble. How quickly can I, oh, I'm just, this is just going to be a one-time escape. I'm just going to use this tonight. How, how easily does that become a nightly habit? That's where we flee. We've got to ask ourselves, how much time do we actually spend in finding refuge in God? Now, some of you think this next part may be cheesy, and it is, and it doesn't look good because I didn't ever do it. I did it. Um... But it puts things into perspectives for us. And I'm not doing this to give you a number and to say that you've got to spend a certain amount of, of your day every day doing whatever. We all have a different process. But Scripture does outline what it means to come to God. Statistically, the average, the average American actually spends seven hours of screen time a day in front of some kind of screen. Be your TV or a phone for, for entertainment. That doesn't include your if you're like, oh, yeah, I work eight hours a day in front of a computer. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when you get home. You spend all day looking at the bad screen so you can get home to look at the good screen, right? The average American spends seven hours and that felt a little excessive because teenagers, right? They're probably factored into that. So I thought, I'm gonna I'm just gonna take a couple hours off that and give us the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what? Probably some of that's email check-in, probably some of that is texting, right? When Siri gives me my screen time updates, I'm always offended but then immediately I go, ah I a some of that's work, right? Sometimes I just forget to turn it off while I'm listening to a podcast. <laughs> the truth is. The average American, we'll say, spends five hours a day being generous on their iPhone watching a screen or their TV watching a screen for fun. So I made a little graphic. Again, sorry. Uh, But it should hurt your eyes because this should sting. All right? That's five hours. Each iPhone represents an hour a day. So we're watching five hours a day. So go to the next one per week. That's 34 hours per week, which is how much per month? 150 hours per month. Okay? Moving on. 1,800 hours with 75 full days a year, we spend with a screen in front of ourselves. 75 days, and some of you guys are looking at this and going, "Ha ha! Americans are so lazy. I don't spend that time on a screen. I spend that time at the gym, right? I spend I spend that time hunting." I spend that time listening to podcasts. I spend, it doesn't matter. If, if that's your mentality here, you're missing the point. It's about where we're putting our time. And what does it say? Anything outside of God, anywhere that we're putting our refuge outside of God. He's fleeing. If we took just 5% of that, we finally finished that Bible reading plan that always ends in Leviticus every single year. With just 15 minutes a day, 1% of your time daily. If you devoted 1% of your daily time with God, that's what it looks like. On top of the five hours a day we spend with you. That's 15 minutes a day. Go to the next one, 30 minutes a day. Next one. One hour per day, 365 hours a year, and that's what it looks like compared to the amount of time we spend entertaining ourselves in other ways. You're not factoring in the Bible app. No one uses that. I don't. I like to say I do. Why am I showing you this? Because it should convict us. And you may be on or off. You may have a few less iPhones than somebody else. But it really is a good picture of where we're spending our time. And you can say, well, look, I don't count that as refuge time. That doesn't lie. How many of you spend an hour a day? And look, I'm convicted about this too. You may say, well, it's easy for you to say. You're... Look, I, I struggle too. But I'll spend my time studying for preaching and, and forsake my own personal growth time. That's, that's the problem I have because I spend way more hours of that in scripture each day. But the truth is, it, it's not the same when we study to preach and when we study to feed ourselves. So don't think that I'm just condemning you. I am right beside you here. What are we spending our time doing? Go back to verse four, or verse three. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We've got to lift our eyes to something Better. And I'm not saying that you've got to spend five hours a day in your Bible, and your free time. The truth is, that says a lot more about the, the time that we spend discipling our families and worshiping in that way than it does reading our Bibles. You could read your Bibles five hours a day. Some guys do, and that becomes an idol. And we miss out on taking care of the people around us. We've got to look heavenward. Verse 4 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see His eyelids test the children of man. We've got to be focused on heaven in this life. God's going to put us through the ringer. He's going to sharpen his people by grinding off all the stuff that makes us dull. But, spoiler alert, it's not a comfortable process. God's testing is not comfy, but it's good. It's perfect, actually, for us. Verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I spoke about this the last time I preached a psalm here. That was two years ago. We talk about how, well, God loves the sinner. He just hates the sin. That's a lie. God doesn't send sin to hell, He sends sinners. We see it in Psalm 5, 4 through 6, which is what I preached last time also. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But God's hate is not like ours. It is righteous. And we struggle to understand that because our hate is rooted in sin. And we say, well, God is love. How can he hate Because he hates what stands against love. He hates what opposes him, and we get in the way of love. Our sin gets in the way of love. Because we are totally opposed to God, Scripture tells us, in our sin. But God made a way to separate us from our sin, to separate us from something that is so core in our being. And the truth is, without understanding God's hate, it's impossible to grasp the true beauty of his love. Because God doesn't come to us as just diamonds that are a little muddy. We're just a little buried. We just need a, God just needs to wrench us in the hose, and then we're beautiful again. Right, doesn't he doesn't need to just sprinkle some water and wipe us down a little bit. It's, we are disgusting at our core and our sin to God. Jesus didn't come and die for diamonds in the rough. He died for his enemies. He died for disgusting sinners that he may redeem us for himself to separate us from our sin through Christ. And through Christ, he transforms us into something beautiful, something we could never be aside from God. So we read the verse in Hosea and go, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we go, how? How is that fair? Yeah, we should ask, how is that fair? But it's not unfair to Esau. Right? It's not controversial that God hates Esau. It's controversial that he loves Jacob. It isn't controversial that God sends sinners to hell. It's controversial that he redeems sinners and lets us into heaven. That's why this next verse doesn't make us go, ah, it's too harsh. The world does not want to hear this. Because the world is subtly opposed to God's truth. It's not grounded in reality. This isn't an escape. This is fire and brimstone hard truth. Verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup because they deserve it. We deserve it. But we are in Christ. And there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And if this still seems harsh to you, understand how soft we've become. The American church has grown fat and lazy in the face of persecution. Were you to be chased and pursued relentlessly by murderers like David, you would get this better. You would understand if we had people out there to kill us for spreading this gospel of hope in the world. Or if only we could see, if we had those spiritual goggles we could put on and see everything going on around us and Satan's hand in this world, oh, we would understand this. We hope for all that we meet to be saved. We can't weep over those who will not hear. Because our hope is not only in God sanctifying us, but in him sanctifying others as well. Verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And why are we separate from those? What makes us righteous than, as opposed to those who walk with Satan? Is it because we don't sin and they do? Nope. Is it because we sin less than they do? I mean, I hope that we do sin less than they do, but no, that's not the reason either. It's because we walk in righteousness, and the Lord loves the work that we do through him, that he does through us. That was heretical. Work made possible through his gospel. The gospel of Jesus, didn't God ruled perfectly, Everything was good, but what did we do? We sinned. And and, and in our sin, we brought death into this world. We turned from God, and and we stood opposed to love. But he provided. God made a way to separate our sin from us. And Jesus Christ, and Jesus gave his life on the cross. And he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to earn eternity. I'm going to earn life, and I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to take all the punishment for your sin that was poured out on Christ on the cross, and he trades it to us. If all we have to do is believe in him, and he says, I have taken your sin. You take eternal life. That's it, and that should draw us to action in our lives. You know, we poke fun at ourselves. Brent has been on a Presbyterian kick lately, Holy cow, we were joking about it in Stabbing the other day, but the the charismatics are getting it in 1 Corinthians. All right, we are, the Bible is equal opportunity offenders, but the Reformed community, why do we poke fun at it? Because we know, right? We can be lazy Calvinists who tend to sit on our hands and cite that God will save who He wants to save. But we know that this gospel doesn't exist to rock us to sleep in the the rest of the perseverance of the saints and the assurance of your salvation. That's not why the gospel exists. Praise God that we have assurance of salvation. But it should provoke us to action in our lives in the assurance of Christ's victory. That we've been promised we will succeed. And if anyone rejects us, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting God. We know that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and be tormented day and night forever and ever. Praise God! That is good for us. What do we do with that? I'm probably about to speak to a really niche group in here, but well, it's four points, so it's probably not that niche. It's a group I find myself in. I'm just going to share my own convictions. This is a masculine church. Praise God. I spent a lot of time in my life in churches that were 80 20, women to men. And it is a beautiful thing to see men in the church leading their families. And this is, well, that also has some physical uh, benefits as well. This is a safe place. Look around. Look at Daniel Norton. Look at this guy. I feel safe with you, Daniel. Thank you. Praise God, we've never had anyone try to harm us in this building. But, like, if we did, half of our churches, m- military or police officers or firefighters, it's a beautiful thing. And, look, there, there's a lot of firearms in this room right now. Praise God. I'm not anti-gun. I used to have a lot of guns before my boating accident where I lost them all. But, but this is a safe place. And it is a good thing for men to come together. And I'm glad that my brothers in Christ carry weapons because the disciples did. After all, Peter had a sword. And when he cut off that guard's ear, it's because he missed. It's because he wasn't trained with the sword. But why do we carry them? Men have an, even the men in the room who aren't carrying weapons, we have an internal inclination for battle and for war. Every man in this room has thought about what they would do if they heard gunshots ring out in this building. Why? Why is that something that God has put on our hearts? Because God made us to protect, but not just physically. We may carry a gun at our side, but is that all we have for war? Is your ability to lead and defend your family and your faith purely physical? I love Lord of the Rings. I have it tattooed on my body. <laughs> and in the, not I love Lord of the Rings, just some Lord of the Rings stuff. That'd be weird. <laughs> but in the two towers, in the second movie, there's this battle in a place called Helm's Deep. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a castle of refuge. And as the men gather together to fight and bear arms, they're bringing young men, teenagers, Up to stand because they may not know how to swing a sword, but at least they know how to hold a shield as they shuffle the women and the the young children and the elderly back into the caves behind the castle. Why? Why did they shuffle? Surely they would be worth something on the battlefield, but no. Why do they put the women and the children in the caves for the battle? Because they cannot fight. They would be more of a hindrance on the battlefield. We can have all the bravado in the world for a physical fight, but what good are you spiritually? That's what matters. This is spiritual after all, right? This, our, our, we're not battling against flesh and blood. Uh, Ephesians 6 continues on after Paul tells us who our enemy is. He says this, starting in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Ryan, you can come on up. Do you feel more comfortable with the gun than the gospel? Have you spent as much time with the sword of the Spirit as with whatever gives you physical peace of mind? Does your family see it? I am all about sports, but fathers, do you spend anywhere near the amount of time training your sons to face Satan as you do training them to face D1 pitchers? What are we doing I saw a stat a couple years ago. Your kid has a 0.03% chance to become a pro athlete and a 0.009% chance to make it in show business or TikTok becoming famous. But there is a 100% chance that they will stand before their creator in judgment. Where is our time devoted? It's not any more noble than being on an iPhone. Anything that's not God where we find refuge, we've got to ask, why are we spending so much time here? If you think I'm being dramatic, do you or do you not believe we're at war? We are no less at war than David was. I love your families, but if you count on four points, kids or the point on Wednesday nights to be the primary means of discipleship in your child's life. They're in trouble. We can't play fast and loose with this. We're at war. Is God training your hands for it? As men, are our hands calloused physically but soft spiritually? Are your wives more adept with the sword of the spirit than you are? Would God put her on the front lines and put you in the caves with the children and the elderly? I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying this because I've been convicted about it. I am with you. We have 16 year old girls bringing grown men to church here. Praise God, Steve. I'm glad you're here, man. But we've got young women in this church who are going out onto the front lines, who are preaching the gospel out in the world and driving tests. Who? Where are you? Is your faith still defined by what you abstain from, or have you moved on to your faith being defined by being shown in what you produce and the fruit that God brings up in your life? This is spiritual. Are you a soldier? Are we a child? That's masculinity. I love physical masculinity. I love hunting. I love eating meat. That does not make me a man. I feel the conviction. I've been feeling it especially hard the last month. Josh Proctor, a lot of you know him, he passed away a month and a day ago. And I'll never forget if any of you guys knew him, then you knew his testimony he was a testimony sharer in the beginning of his testimony he got saved at 29 years old just by reading his bible i'll never forget the way he put it so simple Said the bible never clicked for me until i picked it up and just read it like lord of the rings no pressure i opened it and i trusted god to teach me i enjoyed the ride it's intimidating. Look at this thing. The average American reads five books a year. There's 66 in here. That can be intimidating. But anyone captivated by that story at the beginning? That's like four chapters of First and Second Samuel. There's 55 total chapters there. Start there. Just open it, read it. Don't put any pressure on yourself. Just you got to start somewhere. You're going to cut your hands a little bit when you're. It's a deadly weapon because a sword is not for defense. It's for killing. It's for killing sin. It's for fighting Satan. Don't be a coward in the caves. Dive in. Start in 1 Samuel. There's so much gospel there. Get in the trenches and find refuge in the pillars of our faith and scripture. So what I want now, we sing the psalm at the beginning we're learning it. We have an opportunity here. I thought it would be cool for Ryan to come up. And for us to just take a moment, if you'll stand. If we can take a moment to now, we sang the words before, but the Holy Spirit convicts us and he moves us. And I want to give us a moment to respond as Ryan leads us in singing these verses that we just studied together in hope and in confidence that God will draw us, the same God that convicts us will draw us to his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for his word and thank you for these men. And the fruit that you've produced in them and their families, the women. God, who, have, who are not uh, uh, just to be sent back to the caves, Lord, but who have a role in this fight. For It is spiritual for them as well. Lord, illustrations aren't perfect, but we need, all of us need to be trained. And we know your system. You have started with the male headship in the family. The world is so at war with it. Lord, do something with this conviction in our hearts. Receive our praise, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.